Hello and welcome to the third episode of Desenio's London Design Festival podcast. Today we've abandoned our secret bunker in the Brompton Design District and are instead sat in a subterranean therapist's office in the east end of London. It's another secret bunker, sort of. We like secrets. You sound a bit tired, Ollie, a bit subdued. I'm very worn out from Design Week. I feel spent, drained, something of a husk. Too much design for you. All design and no play makes Ollie Stratford a monosyllabic boy. Ollie Stratford, of course, is the editor-in-chief of Desenio, and my name is Christina Rapatsky. I'm the deputy editor. What's the, um, what's the theme for today? So today's theme is research-driven design projects, and they're kind of the more unobtrusive things that we've come across, not the big high-profile installations but student projects the materials science projects the sort of things that maybe people would have walked past at a trade fair but that is really interesting for reasons that we'll go into yeah it's the sort of work that goes unnoticed but often is actually perhaps a little bit more worthy or shows greater engagement with real world issues so um One project I came across this week is by uh, a designer called James Plimmer. It was the first time I've seen any of his work, uh, but I found it very interesting. He was exhibiting as part of the Rado Star Prize um, exhibition, and he was showing a project called Flow Haler, which is a redesign of an inhaler that asthmatics would use. So James's process started by looking into inhaler use, and he found out some statistics, which I'm going to quote from quickly. They're really quite alarming. So he discovered that 60% of asthma-related deaths are preventable through better asthma care. Uh, He also discovered that 70 to 90% of inhalers are used incorrectly. And that with correct inhaler usage, 50% of the medicine reaches the lungs, whereas a user who doesn't have such good technique with an inhaler would see only 7% efficiency. And then what's he done about that research in terms of design? So it's quite simple, really. He's just changed the form of a traditional inhaler and tweaked it a little bit. So he's identified a couple of factors which improve inhaler use. So one is... If you raise your chin up when you use the device, that straightens your throat and improves the efficiency. And the other side is if you breathe in too quickly, that also damages the efficiency. So that can be resolved by, again, raising the chin and straightening the airflow and also restricting airflow through the inhaler. So James's flow inhaler, it basically has a kind of nodule on the base. So rather than pinching the inhaler, sort of holding it between two fingers, It makes you grip it, and just through the way you have to hold it in your hand, that naturally tips your head back a little bit. That seems like a very intelligent design tweak that's easy to implement as well. What sort of stage is this project at right now? I think it's still early days, so he has prototypes, and now I think the next stage for him is to begin speaking to manufacturers and suppliers and find out whether... um, his ideas are practicable and could be executed. But it seemed very promising and it seemed like he'd identified a good topic, found a very elegant and simple way to get into it. And so James started this project, I think, originally because he is an asthma sufferer and he he was very impressive. He He was on the stand the whole time, which wasn't true of everyone in that competition, and very keen to show everybody his research. And I think that's what's so nice about it, that asthma is a fairly common condition and 
awful lot of people are affected by it. And that's part of the elegance of his design, that this is something which could help an awful lot of people relatively easily. And so it was encouraging to see how committed he is to it. And did he win? No, he didn't win, but he would have been a a very worthwhile winner. So I went to the London Design Fair, which is part of the London Design Festival. It's a it's a trade fair, really, but it also has this segment that's dedicated to a material of the year. And so this year's material was very broad. There's biomaterials that covers all sorts of organic materials. That's quite a turnaround for them, right? If I remember correctly, last year, their material of the year was plastic. Yeah, I said maybe biomaterials was a bit of a mea culpa from them for that. But I, I, to be fair, I think plastic was presented last year as something of a problem material. So, like you say, biomaterials is a it's a pretty broad category. What were they What were they showing as part of that? Yeah, so they had four projects by um, young studios mostly. So Fernando Laposse, who we've covered in the magazine, uh, presented his Totemox stall project, so the corn husk veneer tiles. And there were also uh, a company that uses agriculture waste to create this compression molded material that's very beautiful, sort of from hemp and tobacco. But I think that the project that stood out to me the most was a young company called Chipsboard. These two guys, uh, it came out of a student project. They've collaborated with McCain, I think the biggest potato chip producer in the world. And they use their potato peel and waste materials from their industrial process to create bioplastic, which is biodegradable. And so what they make from this bioplastic are these moldable pellets that can then be used for all sorts of things like buttons in the fashion industry, or they've done a collaboration with Qubits who make the uh, glasses. Um, so there seems to be that focus on using a waste product and making use of existing infrastructure taking something from it that would otherwise be discarded and finding a new function. Yeah, that's right. A lot of students are doing this kind of work now and it's really great to see. And I think what's interesting about it and what what will be good to watch uh, going ahead is how this supply chain is going to look. So currently, one of the guys from Chipsboard was telling me they get their waste material for free because they're operating on a relatively small scale. But he said that going forward, if if he's going to expand, and of course we hope that they're going to expand, it's a great material, then they're going to strike a deal with McCain uh, and, and, and pay them for the waste materials. Yeah, there's this idea that a, a resource that would normally be thrown away or that is waste is going to start getting monetized in new ways. I think on a similar vein, a project that both of us saw, and I think which impressed both of us a lot, is Bioiridescent Sequin by Elisa Bernato of Central St. Martin's, the Material Futures course. Um, Elisa's been working with the Research Institute of Sweden and finding a new way of producing sequins for the fashion industry, which at the moment are typically made from petroleum plastic or synthetic resins and have all of the environmental issues you would imagine. Yeah, so I saw this exhibited at Central St. Martin's at the student exhibition there, which is called Designing for Turbulent Times. I mean, the sequins look exactly like petroleum 
plastic sequins, completely iridescent and uh, kind of reflect the light and refract the light with the colours that you'd expect. So, Yeah, I think they're incredibly beautiful. I don't think they actually do necessarily look massively like the plastic sequins. Well, actually, no, that's an exaggeration. They look a hell of a lot like plastic sequins. But they've got this really lovely softness to them, is what I mean. It's a sort of slightly more subtle effect and obviously because it's being produced from cellulose from a natural material it doesn't have that synthetic quality that i think a lot of sequins have that sort of excessive luster almost and they're entirely biodegradable right yeah so basically in elisa's case she's extracting the crystalline form of cellulose so she takes um, canadian softwood i think and subjects it to some kind of mysterious process and out of it you get these structures that then are able to refract the light. So the final project we're looking to discuss isn't materials-based, but it is a research project in one sense, in that it's looking at urbanism and some of the systems that put the city together. So it's the Fleet Fountain, designed by Michael Anastasiadis for the London Fountain Company, which was founded by Jane Withers and Charles Asprey. So this is a public water fountain. It's made from bronze. It's an incredibly beautiful object, and we'll speak about that a little bit more. It was displayed as a prototype last year in the v and now it's got a permanent installation on Thurlow Street opposite South Kensington Tube Station. It's an area which gets a lot of footfall because you get everyone going from the station to the museum's district. Do you want to describe it? I mean, we both we both walked right past it because it's, it's, it's an unobtrusive design, but that is also part of its beauty, I would say. Yeah, so it's a bronze column with a sort of slit in the top uh, it's got a little sensor on the side so as you move close and move your hand towards it a small jet of water shoots up the top you can fill up a water bottle have a drink there uh, and it's very intuitive how you kind of move your hand over the sensor i would say so i think michael anastasiadis has done an amazing job with the industrial design of the object uh, congratulations michael loving the work but the more interesting story in a sense is what Jane Withers and Charles Asprey, the people behind the company, have done. My understanding is it's been a fairly Herculean effort to get a water fountain installed in London. And they've gone through huge efforts to actually understand how that works. Because it has to be connected up to the public mains. And there's a huge amount of red tape and bureaucracy to go through. So although this is a very modest start, having one fountain, it's an enormous achievement. I think it's also worth comparing it to the Refill London campaign, which was rolled out earlier this year. Is it 50 or 100 water fountains that have been installed? I think the plan is for 100 as the initial quota, and then it will go up over time. Yeah, it's been much lampooned by designers and uh, design critics. Thames Water has overseen the design of the water fountains, and they're big plastic columns which have uh, an enormous emoji-like water drop on top of them. You compared it to a placemark icon or, uh, or one of those Super Mario icons. Yeah, it's very obtrusive. It's uh, an absolutely colossal water droplet. So the idea is you can see it easily, know where you can go and get water. So I guess in one sense, it's okay. It is flagging up that there's a water fountain there, whereas previously there wasn't. But it's it's quite on the nose. It's, it's quite ugly. It's also 
this campaign is all about reducing the use of single-use plastics, but then the fact that the fountain itself is made from plastic maybe sits slightly uncomfortably next to that message. I think it's been a little bit unfairly maligned in some senses. I don't deny that these fountains are pretty hideous. They're not very well put together. At the same time, I mean, it's a it's an accomplishment to have rolled out a hundred fountains across London. I, th- I think they could have done it better. I think the Fleet Fountain by Michael Anastasiadis is streets ahead. I'd rather have 50 of those. Yeah, but they Refill is a campaigning organisation and they've gone with this very direct, naive approach. I think there are better ways of doing that because I think Michael's is campaigning as well. But I have some sympathy and it strikes me as refiller perhaps the wrong target uh in this issue our producer evie hall has just pointed out that when she walked past it uh it was hard to to read it as a water fountain and so maybe a little bit of signposting wouldn't go amiss yeah michael could cast an enormous bronze water droplet that could sit on the top for instance maybe maybe a marble one he does a lot of work with marble so, Ollie, any final thoughts? I'm sorry, I put you on the spot there. <laughs> you've, you've rather dropped me in it. Um, <laughs> no, I think it, it, think it goes to say that the festival is an occasion where the headline acts tend to get all of the attention. That's what everyone goes to see. But often there are these quieter projects which show uh, perhaps a little more research has gone in, a bit more care, and they're incredibly worthwhile seeking out because they're... I think they're a better reflection of what design is today or, or what design could or should be. Ought to be, yeah, I agree. Also, that's why we're here, is to trawl through all the stuff and then bring out the nuggets. Yeah, we're, we're going to trawl through all the stuff and bring out the nuggets. That's always been Desenio's mission statement and we're not going to stop. We're going to supply you with nuggets until you can't take any more. So I think that brings us to the conclusion of this third episode of Desenia's London Design Festival podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. I think we're going to do one more episode after this, something of a summation. Yeah, I have I have more to say. A series finale. We also want to thank everyone who came to our event on Thursday evening and all the participants in that event. And we also wanted to say that Desenio 24, the autumn issue of the Quarterly Journal of Design, is now on newsstands. So you can pick it up in your local newsagents or bookshop, or you can order it online. Why not subscribe? What a lot of ways to get Desenio. That's so convenient. This episode is produced by Evie Hall and edited by me, Christina Lepatsky.